If you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew's Gospel. We'll look at the end of chapter 21, starting in verse 33. The text is also there on the next page of the bulletin. It's about been uh, two months since we were in Matthew's Gospel, but here we are. Uh, you know, Matthew's Gospel is the good news of the true King of heaven and earth and his kingdom what he is like, what his kingdom is like. To remind you what's been happening since it's been a few months, uh, Jesus has entered Jerusalem for the last time. He's entered Jerusalem and the temple uh, to much fanfare. The Lord has come into his temple and has set himself up at the center of attention. He has made room in his temple for those who had been excluded and marginalized by the temple authorities. He has been receiving broken people and making them whole in their relationship to God. Uh, He's been healing their humanity in his presence, restoring them to worship in the temple. So it is Jesus who makes us to belong in his temple by his grace. Uh, And now he is confronting the temple authorities. Uh, They were supposed to be welcoming all kinds of people in his house and in his name. They were supposed to be uh, using this language, this metaphor from this parable that we're going to look at today, they were supposed to be cultivating the vineyard that God had placed them in. But they had rejected his purposes, they rejected him, and that was a rejection uh, you know, of his purposes, was a rejection of God himself. Um, they refused to, uh, to respond to his call to repentance. And so he has some strong words for them. And these words serve as a stark warning for anyone who has a sense of entitlement for what God has given them. Strong warning for anyone who abuses their God-given authority. Uh, For anyone who takes God's gifts for granted while rejecting God himself. Uh, Jesus has strong words here. But here there is also glorious grace for anyone who is interested in life with God in Jesus' name. So, let's talk about that. Let me pray, then we'll read the scripture. Father, we need your help to understand your word, and even more, um, we need your help in order to believe your word and be changed by it. So we pray that you would give us your help through your spirit now. Teach each one of us in our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus said, hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. And when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another and stoned another. And again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they'll respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, 
He'll put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing, producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. So Jesus tells us a parable here that in many ways uh, echoes the central themes and language and overarching stories of the whole Bible. So he's using the language of a vineyard that is often used in Scripture to tell this story. So Isaiah uses very similar language in Isaiah 5, our Old Testament reading, the Bill read. God has planted this vineyard, and this vineyard is his people. Right, so God has done the work of creating his people. He's done the work of forming and cultivating this vineyard, which is his people. God is looking for his vineyard to bear a certain kind of fruit, fruit that he intends for it to bear. He wants his people to bear this fruit in their lives, the fruit of life together with him. That's the fruit he's looking for. And he calls us to participate in cultivating the vineyard together with him, to do his work of cultivation. So uh, this larger story of the whole Bible is pictured for us in the very beginning of the scriptures when God first created humanity. It says in Genesis 2, Yahweh God planted a garden in Eden. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And Yahweh God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And Yahweh God commanded the man, saying, You surely eat of any tree, every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So God planted this garden. It's like the first story in the scriptures. God planted a garden. He did the work. He placed the man there in the garden to continue this work of cultivation in relationship with God. Right? So, but humanity rebelled, rejected God's purpose, rejected God himself. We reached out to take what did not belong to us. We disobeyed God and we we did it to usurp God's own place, to live as if God had not generously established our whole reality to exclude God while we commandeered the world. So our first parents and representatives, they looked to cut God off, but it resulted in them being cut off. Right? So God cast them out of his presence and out of the garden that he had made and given to them. So here, many thousands of years later, the same thing was happening again, which is why Jesus uh, tells this parable. It's It's not just a familiar story from the Bible. It was currently being reenacted again for the umpteenth time by the leaders of Israel. God is the master of a house. That's like a landlord, right? 
who had planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, built a tower. So God had graciously established this people of Israel. And he had given this people leaders who were to cultivate and grow the people in their relationship with God. That's what it says when he says in verse 34, he leased the vineyard to tenants. Right? So these tenants were to do God's work, the landlord's work, on his behalf, as his representatives, faithfully, according to his will, for his sake, to give him the fruit that is due to him. So they're tenants in a specific kind of a real, really a contractual relationship with God. They're not the owners. But they start acting like they own the place. So when the owner sends servants to collect the fruit that belongs to him, these tenants rebel violently with the ultimate goal of seizing the vineyard for themselves to become the owners, completely denying and rejecting the true owner, his claim of ownership, trying to remove him from the picture by force. So here's your um, annual illustration from the Lord of the Rings. First... First of the new year. <laughs> uh, it's like when, when Gandalf, who's the friend of Aragorn, the true king of Gondor, he goes to Gondor, he meets Denethor, who has been serving as steward, kind of like a tenant over Gondor. And Gandalf says, authority is not given to you to deny the return of the king, steward. And the steward responds, the rule of Gondor is mine and no other's. That is the repeated story of Israel over the centuries. That's the story of sinners. In Israel, God is gracious to them. God blesses them. God establishes them in a fruitful land to flourish in their relationship with him. But they forget him. They ignore him. They do what is right in their own eyes without reference to what is right in his eyes. They live as if they were entitled to to all his blessings, as if it didn't matter that God was the one who did the blessing. <clears throat> so there's a quote here in your bulletin, just below the sermon text from John Webster, from a book of sermons of his. And one of his sermons is on this passage, and he says, <clears throat> he asks the question, what is this act of refusal of God? The, these the wicked tenants, the religious leaders, of Israel, they're refusing God. What is it? What is it that they're doing when they refuse God? At its heart, it's a refusal to consent to the reality of their situation as those who owe everything to God. As covenant people, they owe their life to God's giving, God's work, God's word, God's promise. In truth, Israel lives not out of their own resources, but out of grace. And it is exactly that which Israel now denies. Right? So now Jesus is confronting the religious authorities, the leaders and representatives of Israel, the ones who should be most intimately familiar with the fact that they live by his grace alone. The elders and chief priests and scribes and Pharisees, they had enjoyed this place of privilege in God's vineyard as tenants who were meant to cultivate the people in the grace of God. But instead of ministering the grace of God to the people, 
Jesus says here and throughout the Gospels, he says they've oppressed the people. They've placed heavy burdens on them. They excluded those that God had explicitly wanted to be included. They exalted themselves at the expense of the spiritual vitality of others. They abused the authority that had been given to them by God. So God had sent many of his servants, the prophets, you read about them throughout all the prophetic writings in the Old Testament. God had sent his servants to call them to repentance. So many of the prophetic writings of the Old Testament are addressed to the leaders of the people of Israel. Not just the people in general, the leaders, the kings and the priests in particular. The, The prophecies are to call them to repent of the way they've fleeced the sheep, right? The shepherds fleece the sheep. They've consumed, they've kept and consumed the fruits of the vineyard for themselves, these fruits that did not belong to them, uh, to call them to faithfully serve the Lord's purposes among his people, to repent and to be faithful. But for centuries, the prophets had come, and for centuries... They had refused to hear the Lord's servants. They rejected the prophets, even with violence. So you see this, again, throughout the scriptures. Second Chronicles 36, Yahweh, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of Yahweh rose against his people until there was no remedy. And again, in Nehemiah chapter 9, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. Most recently, the leaders in Israel, the tenants in this parable, the tenants in God's vineyard, had rejected the message of John the Baptist, the, the last, the final prophet to come before Jesus. They had rejected his message. They'd refused his call to repentance. Jesus has pointed that out in the passage just previous to this. And now those rebellious tenants had what they perceived to be their greatest opportunity of all. It's an opportunity they cannot miss. They had the opportunity to rid themselves of the owner's claim on them, or, or so they thought, Right? Uh, Finally, now, the owner of the vineyard has sent his son to them, saying, they'll respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let's get him. Come, let's kill him and have his inheritance. And so they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Maybe nobody's going to articulate it that way. Maybe no one would ever say out loud, look, here's the son. Let's get him. If we kill him, everything that belongs to him will be ours. But Jesus is saying, whether you're going to say that out loud or not, this is at the heart of our rejection of God. Sinners want to be out from under God's authority. We want everything that he has made, but we don't want him. We want his own authority and his own place in the vineyard, but not in relationship with him. So when God sent his son into the world, it was our chance to be rid of him and seize what belonged to him. That's what Jesus says. The leaders of Israel, they saw that chance. Eventually, they took that chance. They handed him over to be crucified. 
just as Jesus had said they would, and they did it, even though right now he's exposing the wickedness of their rebellion, which they couldn't help but affirm, and they couldn't help but recognize it in this story. See, while he's telling this story, you know, while he's telling it, they, uh, they didn't realize yet that they were the wicked tenants. Jesus exposes the folly of the tenants. You know, they think they can overthrow the owner's claim by killing his son, but no, the owner still has the claim and he's going to come in wrath. And Jesus asks the leaders of God's people in verse 40, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And they said to him, he'll put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who give him the fruits of their seasons. Right? So they affirm the people about whom this story has been told, the people who are found in the spot of the wicked tenants, they're the villains in the story, they affirm the tenants are wicked. They affirm that the wicked tenants are worthy of death. And they affirm that the owner has the right and the power to destroy them when he comes. Justice is inescapable. Even the wicked are compelled to confess it. It's like when Nathan confronted David. You probably a lot of you uh, thought of this already. It's like when Nathan confronted David for his terrible sins by telling him a parable where in this story David David is the villain, but David himself readily identifies the villain before he is told that in fact he is the villain in the story, right? He affirms the villain is who he is. He's wicked. He's deserving of Justice being done upon him, right? But it's only later that it dawns on him, oh, that's me, oh no, right? And it's only later that it dawns on these religious leaders here that they are the wicked tenants in Jesus' parable. Somewhere inside, they can recognize their guilt. But they are nevertheless happy to play their part in the story. Where David repented when his sins were made known to him, these religious leaders, instead, they doubled down on their their wicked schemes. They, They sought to apprehend Jesus in order to get him out of the picture as quickly as possible so they could maintain their power and their place among God's people. The only problem is killing the son doesn't end the owner's claim. Killing the son doesn't even really result in removing a son from the picture forever. Um, Not in reality, not with Jesus, who died, yet who was raised from the dead. So their rebellion is sheer folly. All our rebellion, all our sin, every single one, is sheer folly. When you rebel against a Lord whose kingdom has no end, that's folly. See, the leaders of Israel, uh, they were Israel's representatives, They really represented all of Israel in their rebellion against God. In their attempt to cast off his authority and seize what did not belong to them. And and Israel really is representative of all the people, all the sinners in the world. They represent all sinners in their violent rejection of God. God has created all people. He's been generous and gracious to all people. We are all dependent on him we owe everything to him our existence everything 
And yet all have refused his claim, all have sinned, all have sought to take the inheritance that truly belongs to the Son while seeking to cut off the Son and cast him out. But here's the mind-boggling wonder of the gospel. All our rebellion was nicely folded into God's plan to share the inheritance with all of us. Share the Son's inheritance with us. So Jesus said to them in verse 42, Have you never read in the Scriptures? He quotes from Psalm 118, which is featured prominently in this chapter of Matthew's Gospel, in chapter 21. He quotes again from Psalm 118. He says that the stone the builders rejected, the builders, he's he's kind of a new metaphor now, the tenants who were cultivating God's vineyard, the builders of the temple, the stone that they rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. And it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. So, using the language of building the temple that's found in Psalm 118, Jesus teaches that he is the cornerstone. He is the the foundational, most important stone. The stone without which there is no temple. And it was through his rejection that he became this cornerstone. It was through his rejection. The religious leaders were meant to build God's temple, to cultivate God's vineyard, to grow God's people in his grace. They rejected the assignment. They rejected God himself. They rejected his son, Jesus. And the rebellion of sinners That rejection of God really is truly evil. But in God's wonderful and gracious plan, it was this very rejection that had the effect of building the temple, of cultivating the vineyard, of growing a people in the grace of God. They thought they were ridding themselves of the Son to steal his inheritance. But Jesus had come to lay down his own life to share his inheritance, to open up to his people his own eternal life with God. It's like when Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery to be rid of him. You can read about that in the end of uh, the book of Genesis. His brothers were jealous of him, so they, they threw him in a pit. Rather than kill him, they sold him into slavery, and God orchestrated events so that Joseph ended up actually ruling over Egypt and saving the known world from a terrible famine. Joseph said in Genesis 50, what they meant for evil, God intended for good. They meant it for evil. It really was evil. God folded it nicely into his plan of salvation. It is folly to work against a God who can do that. It's folly to work against a God who raises his son from the dead to rule over heaven and earth. It's folly to work against a God who even conquers death and makes it serve eternal life. It's folly for sinners to reject the owner of the vineyard. 
But this is good news for those who embrace the owner and who embrace his purposes. Right? The religious leaders could only conceive of this relationship with God in an uh, owner-tenant sort of con- contractual way. They could only conceive of a relationship with God as, as a contractual one of servitude. They said, yes, the wicked tenants would be killed, and then the owner would let out or lease out the vineyard to new tenants. Jesus only partially affirms what's happening here when he says, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. But he doesn't say it will be leased to new tenants. He says it will be given to a people producing its fruits. The new people are in a new relationship with the owner of the vineyard. It's not an owner-tenant relationship. It's not a master-servant relationship. It's a father-son relationship. Jesus has been talking about this for several chapters in Matthew's Gospel. The father-son inheritance kind of relationship. We don't have a lease agreement with God. We have the kingdom given to us, even as the father has given an inheritance to his own son. So the son receives the kingdom by birthright. We receive the kingdom through our adoption into Christ's own sonship. So the kingdom is really and truly and graciously given to us and now really belongs to us, actually. In a way that it did not belong to the previous tenants because the previous tenants had rejected the son and killed him. And it's through the death of Jesus the Son, and it's through the resurrection of Jesus the Son, that he has shared his inheritance with us in a new relationship with God as our Father. So the New Testament authors, the the apostles, write about this in several places. Ephesians 1, Paul says, In him we have obtained an inheritance. Colossians 1, The Father has qualified us to share in the inheritance. Hebrews 9, We receive the the promised eternal inheritance because a death has occurred that redeems us from our sin. 1 Peter 1, we're born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Romans 8, we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Galatians 4, so you're no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Ephesians 3, the mystery is that the Gentiles, not just Israel, the Gentiles, all the nations, people from every tribe, tongue, nation, are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So the thing that disqualified the previous tenants of God's vineyard from receiving the vineyard as their inheritance proving them to be tenants rather than to be sons and heirs, the thing that disqualified them was their ultimate, unrepentant rejection of Jesus as the true Son of God. These same people were given every chance to repent even after they had participated in the crucifixion and murder of Jesus. After the resurrection of Jesus, after his ascension into heaven, after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on his disciples to proclaim forgiveness of sins in his name, 
these wicked tenants had the gospel preached to them. They were called to repent. They were given every opportunity to repent, but their rejection of Jesus was final. And so God's righteous wrath was final. And their tenancy in God's vineyard was brought to an end. The one who falls on this stone, this cornerstone, Jesus, will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it'll crush him. Now there's a new people made up of people from every nation, whether Jews or Gentiles, all those who do repent of their sins, who do go to Jesus, confessing their rebellion. It's not that we haven't rebelled like the wicked tenants. It's that we go to Jesus confessing our rebellion and asking for his forgiveness. This new people come into a new relationship with God through faith in Jesus. We enjoy the very same relationship that Jesus himself enjoys with God as father. And we enjoy the gift of our place in his vineyard. We bear fruit, the fruits of repentance and faith. The fruit of the spirit of sonship, the fruit of the life, the triune God alive in us. Jesus, the son, was cut off and cast out in order to share his inheritance with us, the inheritance of eternal life with God. And so now, as we come to Jesus through repentance and faith, we produce the fruit God wants when we receive his gifts and enjoy them in relationship with him. We produce the fruit God wants when we acknowledge our complete dependence on God, that we're only here by his grace, that he has made us, we wouldn't even exist apart from him, that we belong to him, that he's been generous to us, he's been merciful and gracious, he has set his never-ending love on us, and we're entitled to none of it in and of ourselves. Nevertheless, he has given us the right of inheritance to all of it, all of his favor. We produce the fruit God wants when we give thanks for who Jesus is, for what he's done for us, for his promises to us, his presence with us, for the gracious gift of his spirit, for the the gracious gift of each other in the fellowship of the spirit. The wicked tenants placed heavy burdens on people, the impossible burden really of self-righteousness, which had the effect of excluding people from God's presence in his temple. We produce the fruit God wants in his vineyard when we remove these burdens from people, when we remove them through the proclamation of the gospel, when we welcome those who have been beaten down and cut off. We produce the fruit God wants in his vineyard when we care for each other and serve each other with the gospel when we minister God's grace in Christ to each other and look to cultivate each other in our relationships with Jesus. We produce the fruit God wants when we live together with God, a life that has been opened up to us by God's Son. So let's enter his kingdom of grace together and join him in his own good work of cultivating the vineyard. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we in and of ourselves, deserve to be treated like the wicked tenants of this parable. We have to confess that. Yet you have given your son so that we might become sons, children, heirs. 
Your glorious grace will never cease to amaze us. We pray that you would help us to heed your warning here about the rejection of Jesus. Help us to embrace Jesus by faith, to come to him in repentance and faith. Help us to bear the fruit of his life with you that is alive in us by your spirit. And help us to minister the gospel of your grace to each other and to this world. For your sake, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.